Welcome to Data Bytes. I'm Susan Wong. And I'm Jesse Chizeski Kay. Susan and I are two statisticians, and we want to bring statistics closer to you. We'll touch on topics in big data, data science, machine learning, artificial intelligence, and the list may grow. In this episode, we talk about 538's analysis of primary election polling over the past 40 years. And then we talk about a study that potentially blames Netflix for a surge in teenage suicides in 2017. Let's get started. The 2020 elections are quickly approaching, and for those who follow the news, it's hard to ignore the activities of the Democrat primary candidates. Well, as the primary and presidential elections get closer, we will be seeing lots of polling results. And one question we might be asking a lot is, how predictive are these polls? Yeah, that's how much weight should we put into these polls, right? Um, In particular, are the early polls useful at all in predicting the election results? Yeah, well, 538 looked into this in an article called we analyzed 40 years of primary polls. Even early on, they're fairly predictive. So that's the title. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, they considered presidential primary polls between 1972 and 2016. So one rather straightforward method for evaluating this is by using the polling averages for candidates and comparing these to the percentage of votes they actually earned in the national election. So for the different primary elections in the period considered, they took averages of candidates' polling results in January through June, and then also from July through December of the year before the election. They then created a plot comparing those averages to the national election results. It's important to point out that they're taking averages of polling results. So this isn't actually saying anything about how good individual polls are. Exactly. Yeah. So when considering correlations of averages, we generally expect higher correlations than when considering the raw data. So that's um, using averages when calculating correlations. Um, It's referred to as ecological correlations. Ecological correlations. (laughs) Sounds like we're talking about flora and fauna. (laughs) I'm guessing the connection there is that ecology is a study of how systems, that's groups of organisms in their environment, um, how sort of these systems interact. So here we're talking about averages of different groups of individuals in different polls, um, sort of how they correlate with actual results. Yep, and um, and they calculated a correlation of 0.7 for the first half of the year and 0.8 for the second half of the year. So now looking at the figure they provided, I found this result uh, actually quite surprising Not that I'm an expert at estimating correlations by eye, but it appears to have a lot of scatter and quite a few points near the horizontal and vertical axes. So the the correlations went down only slightly when they um, removed candidates who did not get votes in the primary or national election. Yeah, I see what you're talking about. You shared this figure with me as well. And when I saw it, I just thought, hmm, 0.7.8, that doesn't sound like what I would have expected. There are so many points horizontally near zero that I find these large correlation numbers just just not possible. And of course, we're going to share the source of this figure on our website so that our listeners can take a gander as well. Yeah, so uh, nonetheless, they, they then decided to do some additional grouping. 
Um, in particular, they grouped candidates based on their polling averages. So um, they had a group that was um, 35 and above percent, 20 to 35 percent, 10 to 20 percent, etc. And the top group in the first half of the or in that top group, I should say, in the first half of the year, 75 percent became the party's nominee. Of those in the top group in the second half of the year, 83% became the nominee. So they then took the polling averages and fit a logistic regression in order to obtain a model for estimating the chance of winning the nomination, giving the average support in the polls. Just to give a bit more background on logistic regression, this is a popular linear classification technique predicting categorical responses um, like what we have here, right? So either a candidate received the party nomination or they didn't. Other explanatory variables can be used to construct the logistic regression model. So those things might be the average poll support, for example. In the end, the model can be used to estimate the probability of a candidate winning the nomination given his or her average full support. Yeah, so looking, um, looking at the plot of logistic regression results, the first half and second half of the year models actually look quite similar. So for example, with 50% average support in the polls, both in the first and second half of the year, the estimated probability of winning the nomination appears to be somewhere between 85 and 90%. I guess that suggests there's not a whole lot of, like not any huge changes in the resulting nominations between the first and second half of the year when considering only the average support in the polls. Yes, um, yes, but, but then they did expand the model a bit to include um, what they refer to as name recognition of the candidates. And so they used polls that asked if a respondent had heard of a candidate, but also polls that inquired as to if the respondent had a favorable or unfavorable opinion about a candidate. And so then they decided that any expressed opinion in the favorable or unfavorable poll suggested um, name recognition of the candidate. I guess that makes sense. If a poll respondent had either a favorable or an unfavorable opinion of a candidate, they at least recognize the name of the candidate. Yes, yeah, and uh, the candidates were then ultimately classified as having high name recognition or low name recognition. They could then use this assignment as a predictor in a new logistic regression model. <clears throat> so for candidates with low name recognition, if they didn't have average support in the polls above 10% in the first half of the year, they had a low probability of winning the nomination, and that probability was under 25%. Mm. However, for those uh, low name recognition candidates, if they were able to get over 20% support in the early polls, they actually had a very high probability of winning the nomination, like uh, above 90%. Wow, okay, that's, that's a much bigger difference than what we saw before. So candidates with little or no name recognition who were still somehow able to get a non-negligible average support early in the polls, despite their low name recognition, are probably doing something right. Maybe they're just really good at campaigning. Yeah, agreed. They must have some sort of quality that makes them stand out for sure. And the high and low name recognition estimated models are, are quite different, um, suggesting that name recognition has a big part to play in determining who wins the nomination. One other insight that they had was related to Trump's performance. Um, they noted that um, there were about 84 highly recognized candidates in their data 
who had average support in the polls um, below 10% in the first half of the year. And that's, uh, that's what happened for Trump. So that's including Trump. But of those 84, only Trump went on to win the nomination for his party. Hmm. He's always been an outlier, hasn't he? (laughs) (laughs) So what can we conclude from all these findings? Well, I think 538 is trying to suggest that early polls can be useful for determining who wins the nomination. However, as we noted earlier, we have to keep in mind that this analysis was carried out on average supporting polls and does not mean any particular poll is going to be predictive. There's been some alarming news with regards to teenage suicides in America. The rate of suicides amongst 10 to 17-year-olds specifically has seemingly spiked considerably in March 2017 and in the months following. Some researchers are blaming this increase on a Netflix show called 13 Reasons Why. Hmm. So what's this show about? Well, Jesse, I had never heard of the show before myself, but it's made so much sort of It's been in the news so much now because of this study. So I looked it up and making its debut in late March, 2017, the TV series is about a young woman named Hannah who kills herself. It sounds like she's gone through quite a lot at school, gossip, assault, and so on. And the title of the series refers to a list of reasons why Hannah committed suicide. Wow, this sounds like some pretty heavy material. Indeed, Uh, for teen drama especially, this feels really pretty dark. In spite of this, it's generally very well-reviewed, getting an 8 out of 10 rating on IMDb and a 79% rating on Rotten Tomatoes for Season 1. A research group led by Drs. Bridge, Greenhouse, and Roach at the Research Institute at Nationwide Children's Hospital in Carnegie Mellon began to look into whether there might be evidence linking the series to elevated suicide rates uh, in in the real world amongst teenagers. So by suicide rates, we mean the number of suicides per 100,000 10 to 17-year-olds. That's typically how that's expressed. Now, talking about the problem using proper units is important, of course, because the number of 10 to 17-year-olds changes over time. Yeah, so what data did they use for this research? The data that they looked at are actually publicly available. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, so CDC, already provides an online database called Web-Based Wide-Ranging Online Data for Epidemiologic Research. That's WONDER is the acronym there. Uh, And this records monthly information on the number of suicides and homicides. The authors wanted to study these rates amongst 10 to 64-year-olds between the period January 1st, 2013 and December 31st, 2017. Now, 10 to 64 is a broad set of age ranges, um, but because they've got access to all this data, the authors can then separately examine rates of death by cause, suicide, homicide, um, and they can really break down this whole age group into subgroups of 10 to 17 years of age, 18 to 29 years of age, 30 to 64 years of age, and they can also break things down by sex. Now, homicides, while not the primary focus of the study, was used more as a baseline control with which to compare the rates of suicide. 
So we're dealing with time series data. Um, so that is sequential observations recorded over time. In this case, the data are recorded at monthly intervals. One of the issues um, to be aware of with this sort of data is that there may be um, you know, things like seasonal patterns that make the numbers go up and down in a cyclical manner from one year to the next. So when the authors then talk about elevated suicide rates, they probably first have to account for what the suicide rates ordinarily would have been based on historical flat, tre um, flat trend and um, these seasonal effects accounted for. Yeah, definitely. So the authors noted that the seasonal patterns in youth suicides um, sort of shows the rates being highest in the fall and spring surprise, and lowest during summer. Um, I really hope this isn't driven by school, which of course typically in semester systems is in session in spring and fall. What this means is that if we were to look at a scatter plot of suicide rates on the y-axis and month on the x-axis, we would see this up and down pattern where the rates are low in the beginning of the year, they climb up in spring, they fall again in summer, and then climb back up in, in autumn after coming back down in winter again. This up and down pattern more or less repeats year after year. But probably there's still a trend component too. Um, that is, perhaps there is some sort of level increase or decrease in suicide rates after you remove the effects of seasonality? Yes, sadly, the trend is positive, meaning that suicide rates are on the whole increasing amongst the 10, the 10 to 17-year-old demographic group. The researchers divided the entire period of study into three chunks of time. The largest chunk spans a little over four years, going from January 1st, 2013 to February 2017. This they call the pre-release period, pre-release being this is before the 13 Reasons Why TV show came out. Then the entire month of March 2017 was singled out as the promotional period because that's the time when the trailers and promo videos of the 13 Reasons Why um, series was being heavily pushed. And then the post-release period spans the months from April to December 2017. Um, and just to give some perspective, within the five-year period, there were a total of 180,000 suicides um, in the 10 to 64-year-old age group in the entire United States. And 76% of these were male suicides. Wow, these are mind-boggling numbers and, and not in a good way. Yeah, and, and given that we talked about things like the overall cyclic nature of suicide deaths, researchers were interested in looking at whether there were significant changes in suicide rates over these three sub-time periods, apart from what we would expect under the seasonal and trend patterns that we just talked about. So they also looked at whether similar deviations um, were observed in homicide rates. Uh, okay, so they're using those um, deviations as a proxy for any social, environmental events that could have made everyone in general a bit more depressed or violence prone. That's right. So, so the homicide rates are kind of helping them figure out what the general environmental impacts are and, um, and sort of what's remaining, what's residual um, in the suicide rates that they're not seeing in the homicide rates are then something that they would consider more carefully as being maybe related to the show. Okay, um, great. So, so what did the researchers find? 
Well, in April 2017, there was a 28.9% increase in suicides amongst 10 to 17-year-olds. That month also coincided with the greatest suicide rate over the entire five-year period. Um, In total, from April to December, there were 195 more youth suicides than what would have been predicted from the historical data. And just as what we sort of talked about with homicides as the baseline for comparison, homicides didn't exhibit this pattern. So this is what led the researchers to suggest that this notable spike in suicide rates might be attributable to 13 reasons why. It appears that when the analyses were further broken down by sex, the increase in suicide rates is only statistically significant amongst boys, not girls. Um, Among girls, June 2017 exhibited a significantly greater suicide rate than expectation, but September 2017 um, sort of went the other way. It showed a significantly lower suicide rate. Hmm, interesting. So, so what about the other age groups? There were no statistically significant increases in suicide rates among the other age groups. Um, and again, from the author's perspective, this sort of helps support their idea that perhaps 13 Reasons Why, which is really about teenage suicides, um, maybe this is the series to blame for the spike. Hmm. So you've just uttered the word statistically significant four or five times in the past 30 seconds. I know. Uh, we got to be careful, right? Because this is one of those things that we, we um, have talked about being an issue that whenever we're dealing with a study that has a ton of hypothesis testing, um, the authors here, we're talking about month-to-month statistical significance, right? Talking about how June was statistically significant in one direction for free, free meal for females and September 2017 were statistically significant in the opposite direction, also for females. So when we're talking about statistical significance at this monthly level, it's almost like they're dicing up the data a bit too much. Moreover, when we categorically throw things into the bucket of either being statistically significant or not statistically significant, we're kind of giving too much weight to the meaning of these p-values. But in any case, there is a handy table one in the original paper that shows the actual details of the findings uh, with confidence intervals, all that good stuff, um, looking at all the different subgroups and whether there are significant results um, for suicide and or homicide rates. But all in all, I think we should talk a little bit about how much weight we should give the results of the study. Yeah. um, First, should we note that there are a lot of limitations to the data? It it would have been more helpful if if the researchers had, let's say, information on whether the boys and girls who who had died consumed the TV series. So, of course, that's just in general hard to know. Um, But without that information, we don't know whether the spike in deaths might have been um, due to other things, the changing political climate, etc. So um, the researchers attempted to address this problem um, with proxies that might serve as controls um, and also looking at different age groups, looking at homicide rates, et cetera. Yeah, I really do have to wonder though, by using homicides as a control for suicides, I just don't know if these two things track each other, even under usual circumstances. Um, unless this was obvious, I wish the paper had shown a scatter plot of suicide rates versus homicide rates historically so we could see this for ourselves. I just feel like suicides and homicides are motivated by very different things. Um, this is probably even more true for teenagers that homicides and suicides, you know, 
might be motivated by financial incentives for adults, but with, with, you know, with kids, I just don't know that there is a common factor that causes simultaneously homicides to increase and suicides to increase. Yeah. And uh, that aside, I, I think suicides or homicides in general are just really hard to study. I mean, they're fairly rare events, thankfully. Um, the, the period the researchers are highlighting as potentially seeing a dramatic uptick in suicide rates, well, that could only, um, that, that, that may only constitute a small amount of, of data points at all anyway. Yeah, definitely. And I think just to look at a five-year period and to dice it up into three very differently sized intervals over which to study these changes and, and changes in trends and so on, that's, that's possibly possibly something that's questionable. Um, and finally, while the authors acknowledge their study is not sufficient for concluding causality, they didn't hold back from speculating ways in which the observed uptick in suicides may be caused by 13 reasons why. And here's where I'm starting to feel like the authors may have gone a little too far. They discuss imitation may have contributed to the increase in male youth suicide rates since there was an attempted suicide by a male in the show. Um, they then mention that there is a paradox that exists. Male suicide rates tend to be higher than female suicide rates, although females have a higher rate of attempts. So the author suggests, and I quote, although non-fatal suicide attempt rates may have increased for girls after the release of 13 Reasons Why, national monthly suicide attempt data were not available to address this question. This to me was outside the scope of their data set and analysis. So it just didn't seem like they ought to have brought that up at all. Yeah, it, um, it also, it would have been helpful to understand who, who's actually watching this show. Is it attracting teens across the board or are there certain socioeconomic classes overrepresented or perhaps different regions of the country, et cetera, drawn to such a show? Um, I, I like that the researchers are analyzing this and investigating associations or, or possible causal links, but we do have to be very careful when it comes to um, suggesting causality. On a more unrelated note, there's this awesome website, by the way, that is called Spurious Correlations. Um, I like to use this website in my teaching a lot. It's made by a guy named Tyler Vigan, and it shows all sorts of things that appear to have very, very strong correlations, but just could not possibly be causally related. So definitely give that a look when you have a chance. Thanks for listening to Data Bytes. If you have any questions or suggestions or comments for us, please email us at databytes.podcast at gmail.com. That's databytes with a Y. And if you want to see the numerous articles that served as reference material for today's show, please visit our website at databytespodcast.github.io. Till next time.